Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Good morning, Grantham Church. Good to see all of you in worship this morning. If you're visiting with us, my name is David Flowers. I'm the senior pastor here at Grantham. This morning, we begin a new sermon series. You can see on the screens there, Christ the Center, How the Gospel Shapes Community. And you can see in your bulletin, there is a summary of the series. It says this, what does it look like to be a Christ-centered church that is faithful to the gospel? How can we be a church that doesn't obsess over boundaries or one that ends up erasing all lines that set us apart as faithful disciples? In this four-part sermon series, we'll discover that Christ is the center of our community when we are pursuing him together, affirming historic Christian beliefs, and living out our values as Christ's followers while simultaneously extending grace to those who are at different places on their journey. Amen. I feel like that this series is foundational uh, to where God is taking our congregation in the future. So let's go to God in prayer and ask that he would specifically open up our hearts and our ears to him. Father, We focus our attention and our thoughts. We orient our heart to you in this moment. Holy Spirit, Mothering Spirit, comfort us, convict us, challenge us, guide us. May we sense your presence, may we hear your voice and respond in faithfulness. For it's in Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Would you grab your Bible and open up to the book of Matthew, first gospel, Matthew chapter 16. We're gonna read verses 13 through 18 together. And would you stand one more time as we do that? Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 through 18. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, 
And upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. You may be seated. The passage that we just read is of Simon Peter's, what we know as Simon Peter's great confession at Caesarea Philippi. What's uh, significant, there's several things significant about this. One of the things that's significant about this is where this is taking place. So Caesarea Philippi, uh, we know that uh, Jesus has taken the disciples to the mouth of of a cave, and you can go see this site today. A spring came out of this cave, but it's believed to be the entrance to the underworld, to Hades. And all through history, different pagan gods had been worshipped at this site. So again, it's, it's purposeful for Jesus to take his dis- disciples into Gentile territory, in a pagan site, to stand at the gates of hell, and to have this confession take place there, and Jesus say these words, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not Concrete. And of, co- of course, the, the idea here is that uh, the, the kingdom of God is on the offensive, right? And hell can't keep it out. That's the picture we should have in our head. So, and in, in look at the confession there in your Bible. The confession is that Jesus is the Messiah, Peter says, the son of the living God, right? All those other gods are dead. Jesus is the son of the living God, the Messiah. It's upon the rock of Peter's confession that Jesus says, I will build my church. I will build my church. Pay attention to those words. Don't miss this. The local church is God's idea. It's not our idea. It's God's idea, specifically Christ's idea. Jesus wants the church. As Paul said to the Ephesians, it was God's eternal purpose. His eternal purpose throughout all of time, that he would have a church made up of Jews and Gentiles, that he would bless the whole world through them. And that's not a bunch of individual Christians, you know, always on the go, listening to podcasts, reading books, watching sermons at home, and having some nebulous idea of the church, or wherever a Christian is, there's the church. No. Jesus' idea is local congregations manifesting his presence, being the hands and the feet of Jesus, where everybody lives, works, and plays. So the church is made up of disciples pursuing Jesus and sharing life together in relationship and on gospel mission to our neighbors. You could say this is the grassroots movement of the kingdom. This is how Jesus is bringing the kingdom. So knowing that Jesus, who died for you, was raised for you and shows us what God is like and has always been like and pointing others to this Jesus who stands at the center of the church is the head of the church, as the scripture says, and is supreme over all of creation is what we've been called to as disciples, to point people to this God. We're called to love, to worship, and call others to the God of the center. That's what this message, this first message in our series is entitled. I want to begin this series by reminding us that Jesus proclaimed the gospel of salvation to all who believed, and he offered mercy, grace, forgiveness, and new life to those who would follow him. He embodied the good news in his life and and in his ministry as well, and he gave his church the task of doing the same. 
Therefore, he wants us to form worshiping communities like this here, Grantham, of disciples in the church who actively pursue him and point others to the God who looks like Jesus, the Messiah, as Peter said, the son of the living God. And and in this first installment, we're going to look at how our concept of God and our understanding of the gospel determines the sort of community and culture that exists in the church. That's what the author of a new book, which has inspired this series. Some of you often wonder, how does he come up with this series? Well, in this case, a book inspired this, and it helps us to understand uh, some of these things. Mark Baker is a professor of mission and theology at Fresno Pacific Biblical Seminary in Fresno, California. He served as a missionary in Honduras for 10 years and has written several books, and his latest book being this one from last year. It's called Centered Set Church discipleship and community without judgmentalism. Mark wrote the book after Terry Brensker, some of you know him, he was a former pastor here at Grantham, encouraged him to write it. Heard Mark teaching about these things that you need to put this stuff in a book. And so I'm grateful that Mark did that because Mark's book is helping pastors, leaders, and their churches for such a time as this imagine a third way of Christian community. He actually even calls it that, third way Christian community. So I want to credit Mark with the main concepts that we'll be exploring in this series and say that I'm grateful for uh, his prompt correspondence with me via email in the past two weeks in case he's listening to this. There you go. Here's what the back cover of Mark's book says. Christians can be adept at drawing lines, determining what it means to be a good Christian, and judging those who stray out of bounds. Other times, they erase all the lines in favor of a vague and inoffensive faith. So picture the two extremes there. Both impulses can come from positive intentions, but either can lead to a stunted spiritual life and harmful relationships. Is there another option? Mark says, the late missionary anthropologist Paul Hebert famously drew on mathematical theory to deploy the concepts of bounded, fuzzy, and centered sets to shed light on the nature of Christian community. And so Mark's new book is a manual of sorts on how to apply that vision. He shows how Scripture presents an alternative to either obsessing over boundaries or simply erasing them. And that alternative, which is the third way Jesus revealed, is what he's calling a centered set approach. As a brief overview of where we're going in the next three weeks, let's look at the differences in bounded, fuzzy, and centered set with several images. Again, we're going to go deep into each of these throughout this series. Here's the first one. It's called bounded church. You look at the picture there, and you can see that some people are in the boundary and some people are outside the boundary. A bounded church has a clear boundary line that is static and distinguishes Christians from non-Christians or true Christians from mediocre Christians. The line generally consists of a list of correct beliefs and certain visible behaviors. A bounded church has tendencies toward a sense of superiority and judgmentalism. It hinders transparency and it shames. Next week we'll talk about this one specifically, but you're probably, some of you are already thinking, I'm familiar with that. (laughs) I've experienced the bounded church. 
And then there is the fuzzy church. Notice the line just gets fuzzy, right? It kind of almost kind of goes away. A fuzzy church is the opposite of the bounded church. And you notice that a lot of people who experience bounded church want to move to the opposite extreme. Have you noticed that these days? We live in, a, we live in extreme days. We live in a society and a culture that does not know how to do anything but gravitate toward extremes. So some of us who grew up in the fundamentalist conservative form of Christianity want to gravitate toward the liberal kind, right, and the progressive kind, maybe even the fuzzy kind. We do this in politics, we do this in theology, and I think we'd be better off if we would quickly come to realize this is happening and that Jesus is in the center, not on the edges not in the extremes. Back to the sermon. (laughs) A fuzzy church is the opposite of the bounded church. It erases all lines and boundaries. The grounds for distinction, right? Who's in and who's out? Us versus them kind of thinking. And shaming judgmentalism. They're gone, but the fuzziness erodes the group's sense of identity, lacks a sense of call to a different way of living. So we don't really talk about holiness. Like we grew up in a church that said, no rated R movies, no secular music. And so now we're like, hey, I can do all of that, and I don't have to use any cultural discernment whatsoever. Do you see that that's where we've gone to? And some of us have experienced the bounded, and so then we gravitate toward the fuzzy. And actually, this inhibits a love, a full love of others. You say, how is that? Because if we don't recognize the sin that we're all kind of walking in and struggling with and processing as we become disciples of Jesus, and we're not honest that we're made in God's image, but broken and not as we should be, then we can't ever actually experience the depth of the love that Jesus calls us to have for each other. Because in a sense, we're all kind of pretending, I'm okay and you're okay. But folks, we're not. (laughs) This is why we're here. This is a, Jesus would have said, a hospital for sinners, right? As I said before, if we all took a rapid sin test, you would be positive this morning. So welcome to the church. (laughs) So it has a tendency, this fuzzy church, toward blandness, like low expectations, and it creates a new set of problems in the church. Again, week three, we'll talk about the fuzzy church. And then there is the alternative third way option, which I'm inviting us to explore and embrace together, the centered church. You can define it this way. Again, a wonderful image here. You'll notice some of the people are oriented and aimed at the center, the God of the center, Jesus, right? The God who looks like Jesus. And some are with us, but their lives are not aimed at the center, not at Christ. A center church discerns who belongs to the group by observing people's relationship with the center, right? They're here, they attend services, but are their lives seeking Jesus? Are their hearts oriented towards some political agenda or some political ideology, or is it Christ? The group includes all who are oriented toward the center, which is Jesus. Their common direction brings unity. Notice that. The common, their common direction brings unity. There's space to struggle and fail because they believe that everyone is in process moving closer to the center. A centered approach remedies the problems of a bounded church that motivates a fuzzy church to blur boundaries while also avoiding the negative fruit that grows 
out of a fuzzy approach. And this is what we're exploring in this series. I hope that you'll hang with us each week. Now, let's look at each of these three paradigms in one graphic and compare them. Look at this. And I'd like you to look at each of these. Here we are, side by side, and and listen to this quote from Mark Baker. He says this, We must describe who God is because our conceptions about God will influence whether we do church in a bounded, fuzzy, or centered way. And the paradigm of our church will influence how we view God. So notice what Mark is saying. In other words, our concept of God and our paradigm of being community becomes reinforcing. So is it the chicken or the egg? Well, they're both important and they both reinforce each other. But this morning, I would like us to think about our concept of God. Because the author of this book is saying that whatever your concept of God is will lead you into one of these forms of community. So as we invite you to do quite a bit uh, at Grantham, we, we often say this, let's reflect on our concept and portrait of God and ask, does it look like Jesus? And not the Jesus of our own making, but the Jesus of the Gospels. And of course, the only way to know that is to read the Gospels. Because that's what we testify to as Christians, that we follow this God who looks like Jesus that's revealed to us in the Scriptures. Listen to what the Scriptures say. Uh, Just a few verses here. Go-to passages of Scripture that tell us that God looks like Jesus. Paul in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. That's very poetic. I love that. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. We see God, Paul is saying, in Jesus. Jesus is the Word made flesh, as the Gospel John would say. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, like the, a sun that shines, right, and, and illuminates. He's saying that Jesus, the sun, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. And then John chapter 1, verse 14, John tells us the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. Holding those together is key if we're going to follow Jesus and be a centered church. Also notice there in John chapter 1, verse 14, Jesus talked a great deal about his Abba, the Aramaic word for father or daddy. He said, the father sent me. And then he also said, I only say what the father tells me to say, and I do what I see him doing. He told us to pray to the father, and you can know him as I know him. And he also said, the father and I are one, that is Jesus and Yahweh or are the same. And the, the early church will develop that theology even further. Even later in Paul's writings, uh, you'll hear him say things like this. The, the, the designation of Lord, which was for Yahweh, for God of the Old Testament, is given to Jesus. 
And likewise, in the imperial realm, the Lord referred to Caesar, and they're giving it to Jesus. Jesus is central. Jesus is supreme. There is no name that's higher than the name of Jesus. Paul would say in Philippians that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So listen to what Jesus said in one of his last conversations with his disciples before he was arrested and crucified. This is from John 14, verses 6 through 9. Jesus, uh, as I said, one of the last conversations with the disciples, he's talking about he's going to go away. And where he's going, they can't come. He's going to be with the Father, and even though they can't come with him, he has shown them the way. And they say, what are you talking about? You've not given us a map. Where are you going? How do we get there? And Jesus said, listen, I myself, it says that very emphatically in Greek, I myself am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he tells the disciples, if you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, okay, show us the Father and then we'll be satisfied. And Jesus replied, have I been with you all this time? You know, I could hear Jesus saying that to a lot of Christians that grew up in the church. Have I been with you all this time and you still don't get it that God looks like Jesus? Oh, we need to hear that, folks. Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. This is what is so radical about the doctrine of the incarnation. Consider the many things that Jesus said and did to reveal what God is like, this God of the center. Think about it. He helped a family early on in his ministry. First miracle, he helped a family avoid dishonor and shame and when they ran out of wine at their wedding, right? And Jesus fixed their problem. He welcomed those who were unclean and treated as outsiders, whether it was the woman with the issue of blood or a leper, it didn't matter. Jesus would touch those who no one else wanted to touch. He would include those no one wanted to include. He loved tax collectors who were hated by the Jewish people because they were Jews working for the empire, robbing them of the hard-earned money. And he chose and loved zealots who wanted to kill the tax collectors. He loved fishermen. He loved those who betrayed him. He loved Pharisees, and he loved Romans. And that encompasses everyone, doesn't it? He touched, he healed, he forgave sins, he restored people to community. He met people where they were, and he loved them into change. He loved them into change. And he didn't operate according to the bounded rule setting of the religious leaders, as we'll see next Sunday. And we can see this most clearly in how Jesus disregarded even overturning the standard practices of table fellowship in first century Judaism. Look at the gospel, Luke chapter 14, verse 12 through 14. In one episode, Jesus is in the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees, been invited to dinner, and he turned to his host and he said, when you put on a luncheon or a banquet, don't just invite your friends. 
or your brothers or your relatives, yeah, those who are like you or maybe that you like, and, and your rich neighbors. For they will invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Listen to what Jesus is saying here. This is a radical practice because table fellowship was an intimate practice that said something about who you value, what you value, and was often used to denote your status and the status of others. For example, at a banquet or a luncheon or dinner, the host would invite important people or those like them. Inviting people with status was a strategic move. And the practice was that if you accepted an invitation, that you were duty-bound to reciprocate that honor later on. It was just expected. Instead, Jesus, you notice here, wants us to use the table as an act of acceptance and inclusion according to the example that he gives us. Being full of grace and what? Truth. Again, meeting people where they are, letting love open the door to change. And that, that was a song, wasn't it? I remember Audio Adrenaline singing that song, but maybe they, maybe they were covering that from somebody else. Let my love open the door, right? You remember that song? Okay. 90s evangelicalism. So. Where was I? Notice, Jesus lets love open the door wants us to let love open the door to repentance, to change, to reconciliation, to restoration in a new world. And of course, Jesus told stories to reveal what God is really like. I think one of the clearest examples of this is uh, when we hear this story, Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, verse 1 and 2, Jesus begins, or, or Luke tells us, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they muttered to themselves, saying, this man welcomes sinners, and he eats with them. <sighs> yes, he did. And then Jesus tells three parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, or what we know as the parable of the prodigal Son, you remember this story. Jesus wants us to understand that the father in this story is what God is like. You remember the youngest son comes to the father, demands his inheritance early, which is basically like saying, Dad, I wish you were already dead. Give me my money so I can go. And he does this. And Jesus tells us in this story that he goes and spends his inheritance on wild living and indulges himself until the money has run out. And when the money does run out, he realizes I've made a bad mistake. <laughs> and so he says, maybe if I go home, dad will let me become a servant. I mean, even that would be better than the life I'm living now. And so he goes, and you remember the story, the father sees him coming from afar, right? Now, how could he see that? Because he was looking. He sees his son coming, and the father picks up his robe, and he runs, something Middle Eastern men would not do. It was shameful to do this, but he does it. He risks his own reputation, runs to his son, and embraces him and says, let's throw a party. 
And one of the things that Jesus is doing in this story is challenging the bounded set thinking. Remember, the oldest son gets a little upset. And the oldest son, if you don't know this, is supposed to represent the religious leaders. Their attitude is, this is unacceptable, Dad. How dare you do this? You've never done anything like this for me, but yet you're accepting him back. You're throwing a party. You're putting a ring on his finger. You've killed the fatted calf. Jesus is challenging this bounded thinking, this attitude of the older son, which embodies that sort of bounded thinking. But he also challenges fuzzy thinking. I see fuzzy thinking would be like, well, we don't want to call people lost. Well, that, that would sound very nice. You know, but yet Jesus says there are sheep and there are goats. <laughs> that was Jesus. And actually what he says in this story is the father says, my son was lost, but now he's found. He was dead, but now he's alive. So Jesus isn't only challenging the bounded set idea, but he's also challenging the fuzzy set idea because God welcomes all who seek him. And if you notice, a lot of those fuzzy bounded, the fuzzy set people in reaction to the bounded set people actually kind of draw new lines. It's just inherent in our sinful fallen nature, isn't it? And then if you go and look at this parable, it appears as if Jesus doesn't actually finish the story. It's an open invitation, folks. He's asking, will you join the party? Will you celebrate for those who are lost but can be found? For those who are dead but can be raised to life. And think about this. In Centerset Church, Mark Baker writes, Today Jesus would confront the bounded ways of conservative fundamentalists and progressives. He would invite both groups to dine at the table with those whom they view with contempt. And I ask you, friends, where else does that happen in the world? If it doesn't happen with us, it will not happen at all. And it's not like this is just some mushy middle road position or this is just some idea for us all just to get along. Folks, this is the gospel. This is the God of the center. And this is how change comes. And there are lots of ways to do that, to embody this gospel to the world. One tangible way we through that, see, see that is through the communion table, which we're going to partake in this morning. And, and as we do, I want you to think about that. Wherever you are, wherever you find yourself on a political spectrum or what you think about people, what Jesus is doing with this table is unlike anything that the world has to offer. And listen to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, verse 32. This is from the message. He said, I'm here inviting outsiders, not insiders. An invitation to a changed life, changed inside and out. And so get that image in your head of Jesus in the center, the God of the center, the cross in the center. Where are you in that graphic? And where is your arrow pointing? 
right? Because Jesus says, I'm here inviting people to a changed life, changed inside and out. And let's be clear, the God of the sinner, the God of the center that we're moving toward and inviting others to do the same is not a a list of beliefs about Jesus or even a particular interpretation or a set of behaviors, but it's an invitation to know Christ himself. To know Christ himself, the living, resurrected Jesus who has given us his spirit, as we remember on this Pentecost Sunday. For it's in the knowing and relating to the living Lord that we're changed and transformed. Jesus changes people. And it's about knowing Christ. That's why the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 through 14, if you want to open up there, you can do that. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Paul said, I once thought these things were valuable. Now, what things is he talking about? All of the things that made him a good religious Jew. You might even say all those things I used to be proud of when I was in the bounded set. (laughs) He said, I once thought these things valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yet everything, yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul is saying it's all about knowing Jesus. It's the only thing that really matters for the Apostle Paul. For his sake, he says, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage. It's really strong language in the Greek, but garbage is a nice word, so we'll use that. He says, so that I could gain Christ, become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. Listen to that passion to know Jesus. I want to know the same Jesus who God raised from the dead. I want to know that power that raised Jesus from the dead. I want to suffer with him. Say what? Paul says sharing in his death so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. He said, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection. Listen to what Paul's saying. But I'm, my life is aimed at the center. I'm, my life is aimed at the God of the center. Th- this is where all of my loves are oriented to. He said, no, my dear brothers and sisters, I've not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Now, folks, the invitation is to come to the God of the center, to orient our lives, to aim our lives at this God. Finally, here are some questions to help us reflect on what we've heard and respond to the leading of the Spirit. Number one, is knowing the God who looks like Jesus at the center of your life? I mean, is, is, is that day to day, week to week, are you thinking, I am here to know the God who looks like Jesus? Is that how you live? And the challenge is for all of us that if we want our arrows to be pointing to Christ at the center, to the God at the center, that's how we must live. Otherwise, in, in some sense, we're, 
we're kind of just taking up space. So he is knowing the God who looks like Jesus at the center of your life. Are you pursuing him? Number two, what has been your view or experience with the church? I want you to think about this as we go into the series. Has it been bounded? Has it been the fuzzy kind or a centered set idea? What's been your view or experience with the church? And I hope maybe you're encouraged this morning to know if you've experienced the bounded and the fuzzy that there is a third option. And then lastly, number three, and I I think we'll probably keep thinking about this question as we go through this series in the next three weeks. What would it look like for Grantham Church to be a centered church that models the grace and truth of Jesus? Let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart about these things. Holy Spirit, we ask you to speak to us in this time of reflection. Help us, Lord, to be honest about how we tend to gravitate toward extremes, which locks us in a never-ending perpetual ping-pong of chaos and noise, hate and vitriol. Lord, save us from this sickness and disease in our culture. And God, empower us by your Holy Spirit to follow Jesus and imagine a new way of living, a new way of being community together, one that believes in grace but also truth, one that believes in in reconciliation and redemption and restoration and in hope. So speak to our hearts, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we will, by your power, respond in obedience with open hearts for what you have us to do. For it's in Christ's name that we pray.